0: Hello, my name is Maxine McIntosh, and I'm the program lead for diverse data at Genomics England. And if you didn't realize already, you're listening to the G Word podcast. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we really hope to bring the benefits of genomic medicine to everyone. Genomics is a word that can trigger some very strong responses, it can trigger feelings of hope, fear, anger confusion is it genomics or genomics which seems to be the most hard-hitting important conversation that's happening in my household at the moment but really there's loads of information out there and it's definitely not accessible to non-experts so we want to talk more about this word the g word genomics many people listening will know that we have huge imbalances in our data in the world of genomics and data sets all over the world are dominated by individuals of European ancestry. But By the time we get to the point where a data set is imbalanced, it's actually built on years if not decades of individuals, if not hundreds of individuals, decisions, processes. And some of those decisions and processes start with funders, they start at the beginning. So today we're going to have a deep dive into the world of funding and funders and their role in supporting an environment that drives better equity and diversity in the world of health and data science. And to guide us on this merry journey, we have the lovely Bilal Mateen from the Wellcome Trust and the ebullient Evan Takovsky from the Rockefeller Foundation. Welcome to the G Word.
1: Thanks, Maxine.
2: Thank you.
0: Right, Bilal, your background is that you are physician by training and you have spent the last five years working on data science and machine learning applications in healthcare. But the main thing you currently do is you're a clinical technology lead or senior manager for digital technology at the Wellcome Trust. Evan, you are a data scientist by training, and you have been leading the data and technology funding on the Rockefeller Innovation Team for the last five years. So in that role, you are involved in funding data products, services, technical communities, all of which help solve major problems like health, energy, climate systems, food, agriculture, and economic problems. You also lead the portfolio on advanced analytics, AI, machine learning, any other sort of advanced analytics type words, I presume. And since the start of the pandemic, you've been working closely with the health team on the pandemic response. Uh, You're also involved in the steering committee for the Lacuna Fund, which we'll have a a chat about later. So I won't give it too much of an introduction. And so welcome to the podcast. I also want to just flag that um, uh, Evan and Bilal wanted to, to make sure that everyone knew that they were, world leaders in genetics, um, almost at the professorial level of knowledge. Um, So uh, if you are astounded by the complexity and the depth of their knowledge in genomics, then um, I can also understand, which is another way of saying uh, they want to make it very aware that they have absolutely minimal understanding of genomics. And this is primarily a data science podcast. So uh, uh, anything they do say about genetics, give them a wide berth of accuracy. So, right. We want to have a bit of a chat about the big questions. But before we go to that, tell me a little bit about your background and what your role is now and what does that actually entail? Um, so, Evan, kick us off.
2: Awesome. Thanks so much, Maxine. Thank you for having me and uh, really looking forward to this conversation with you and Bilal. Um So I'm Evan Tosky. Uh I have data science in my title and I tend to do that, but I do it in a different way. So whereas a normal data scientists might be coding up new applications, writing analysis, and building products, uh, at Rockefeller Foundation, I, I zoom one level up and think about how can I provide resources to incentivize those activities? So resources for the folks who are actually building the products, the folks who are designing data sets, uh, the people who are working within institutions to make sure that data science adds up to Uh, useful analytics and then affects decision-making and you know i'm really lucky in that i also get the chance to from time to time embed with teams still get to do a little bit of technical work myself Um, but but really we're we're almost always zooming up and saying you know what actually needs to be funded what actually needs to be done how can we build partnerships between different folks and how can we make sure that the outcomes uh, that we're delivering are um, faster better more equitable than what would be without technical intervention
0: Awesome. A perfect introduction. Thanks Evan. Bilal, what's your name and where'd you come from?
1: Hi Maxine. Thank you again for, uh, for having me. My name is Bilal Mateen. I, I think you summed it up wonderfully at the beginning, but I like to describe myself as a recovering medic who fell in with the wrong crowd uh, and a similar crowd to both you and Evan. So mathematicians and software developers. And then somewhere along the way, I ended up in this team called data for science and health at the welcome and kind of the elevator pitch for what we do is, About three or four years ago, uh, the Wellcome Trust recognized that there was clearly an increasing importance of computational science and kind of the catalytic role that it plays in accelerating discovery research. And so the Wellcome Trust set up this team and the team's vision has always been about supporting trustworthy data science. And as part of that, I have the privilege of leading the strand of work that we have on funding digital technology. And that includes everything from software tools, like posted packages to digital infrastructure, like trusted research environments. But part of our central thesis has always been that technology isn't neutral, which is why we have a digital policy team and a digital equity team that sit within that umbrella of data for science and health. And it's the combination of all three that we see is key to our success in supporting trustworthy data science. And it's why I love working with folks like Evan, the Rockefeller, because we all recognize that it's the incentive structures that need to change and how we fund really needs to push the limits of what's been done before. Thanks for having me.
0: Amazing. So, you anyway, welcome. Lovely to have you with us uh, again, always regularly. Um, so you've kind of touched a bit on this already, Bell but um, what would you say is a characterization of the problem we have at the moment with unequal or inequitable data science? If it takes a health or genomic lens, fantastic, but if not, just thinking about data science, because this is it gets quite philosophical and quite um conceptual quite quickly but actually the, the slight stance and position that you take on on defining what the problem is actually on our hands is is quite fundamental so if i was to ask you to maybe succinctly as harsh but uh succinctly uh try and characterize the problem on our hands with inequitable health data science what would that be bilal you can kick us off and then evan you'll come in swooping with a with a wee bit more time to, to prep your answer
1: Oh, way to put me on the spot. So I think that, and I'm really looking forward to talking about more, uh, more of the stuff that we've done in this space, but there's a a lack of diverse data. We know, we know that, Uh, there's been loads of great pieces that have established that it's not even that we just tend to collect data sets in high income countries, but even within those high income countries, we tend to focus on people from privileged backgrounds, but. It's all of the enabling environment around that. So it's not just what we collect, but also who's working with it and the questions they're asking and whether that benefit is equitably distributed. Um, and the really simple way that I like to think about it is we're basically looking into a dark room through a very tiny keyhole. You're only ever going to see a small part of what's possible. If you do that, we need to basically open the door, walk inside and bring a whole community with us uh, to figure out what's possible. And that's my very grandiose summation of the problem.
0: That's a very beautiful, very beautiful metaphor. I love it. Evan, how are you going to follow that
2: one? The poetry, <laughs> the poetry. Uh, I, I think for me, maybe the my angle on it is I often think about it. We have a set of problems that are benchmarkable, right? So we can actually go out and say, in a given data set, who's included in that data set or not? What set of um, samples were collected? How were they collected, et cetera? And we can look at that and break that down. There's there's a, a great sort of emerging field of researchers who do this for facial recognition, who do this for genomics data sets, who do this for a whole bunch of different uh, data sets of like really high importance for society. And then there's a kind of a second set of things where it's kind of unbenchmarkable. It's the idea of like who even has the opportunity in their career or in their life to become a world-class machine learning engineer. And, and that's, you know... Given a lot of systemic barriers or structures, you know that may not be even accessible to people. But the ideas that they would work on, the ideas, the problems that they would kind of crack on, are things that are it's difficult for us to put a benchmark around it. But it's still part of this this global inequity. And behind both of those things, I think you know, uh, depending on the country or the context, we have both you know systems uh, of racism that that have uh, created huge barriers for folks to to move into these fields, and then we also have you know, global inequality where. Uh, It's ruled out. It's kept people out of systems, kept people from represented in data sets where they could benefit from from having representation. And so, yeah, I guess for me, I almost try to break it down into things I can try to tackle when there's a benchmarkable problem. It's it's a matter of finding out how to um, maybe equalize or write the benchmark. But then with the unbenchmarkable stuff. Uh, It really is a process of engaging with communities who have a vision for changing the world, right, and reaching out to them, understanding what their priorities are, what their problems they see are, what their experiences are, and providing, you know, resources to help them make progress.
0: So, Evan, you obviously work, not just in health, Um, you work across lots of different domains, arguably that the pandemic means that everything has a health bent to it and and Bilal, you know, I know that uh, obviously the Wellcome Trust is focused focused on health, but it it intersects with climate and other conditions um, within the broad context of health. Is this a data bias problem, which is basically when you zoom out it's kind of the same across every discipline or is there something really quite specific about health or even specific about genomics again i remember as as world experts in genomics you might be able to comment on that but but you know health likes to think it's unique and is it is it actually unique when you come when you think about this as a data bias problem
2: so i'll take a pass at that so i think it is unique in that the there are unique opportunities um and unique methodologies for each field. So for example, other fields I work in, um, energy systems, climate systems, and food systems. And there, you know, we often start with remote sensing as our kind of primary data set, or, or the place we go to think about when we analyze. Uh, and I think that gives us a lot of opportunities. It also creates a lot of problems. Often, you know, we need training data to be able to extract some sort of signal from those um, some, from those kind of remote sense data sets. But the problems of global coverage are, are you know, it's a lot easier. We can fly a satellite, you know, around the entire world and collect those samples. Uh, it's different when we think about actually collecting clinical samples. And I think we've seen that um, both at the point of collection, there's uh, some real differences there, and who's able to actually say fund a team to go out and collect a sample. And then I think throughout COVID, we've seen that um, the pipelines with which those samples get translated into uh, some sort of scientific result and then into some sort of policy advice are uh, really different, and many of them are quite broken in in challenging ways. And so I do see the problems of of health and then. Kind of up to genomics as as being uh, somewhat unique from a lot of the other areas we work on. I think they're also unique in another way of you know um, you know when I look at satellite imagery, there are, of course are privacy implications, there are equity implications to analyzing those data and working it, but they are. Very different than someone's genome, and the level of care that has to go into that, the the complexity around consent in those in those cases, and then how fast the science is moving and how it's emerging, uh, and what we'll be able to do five years from now, very different than today. I really do think it's unique in those respects. I hate to contradict Evan,
1: (laughs) but I'm going to anyways. Um, But like I entirely get what, what you're saying, Evan, when you talk about satellite imaging and its role in climate and environment. Climate, environment, and energy work, which I will default to your opinion every single time on, but my experience in the welcome climate health work has been that when you're thinking about um, how we aggregate Met Office data um, in things like the European Centre for Medium Weather Forecasting (ECMWF) and creating these global reanalysis products, there's been some brilliant work uh, by people like Rachel Lowe, who's now at the Barcelona Supercomputing Center, showing that when you try and downscale um those global reanalysis data sets and try and use them as part of a a health prediction problem looking at what's going to happen to dengue in southern ecuador for example the results you get are entirely off the mark given what we know about the the relationships between these um, climate and weather factors and that infectious disease and when you peer a little bit deeper it transpires that most of these global reanalysis products are trained largely with data from high income countries, which are way overrepresented in the data set. And therefore, when you train the model that allows you to create that beautifully gridded product that people love using, surprise, surprise, it doesn't represent the experience of low and middle income countries quite that well because they're underrepresented. So I, I don't want to minimize the problem to is this just an issue of representation? But I think that common thread comes up time and time and time again um and despite my my attempts to find nuance it's often just this this wonderfully comforting thing where i can be like oh yeah i've seen this before Um, no one has a particularly good answer although other than we all need to do better um but i think there is something to be said about the fact that it is a common theme and we can learn from each other in different fields by recognizing that
2: yeah that makes sense i mean the thing i'm always somewhat astonished by is when we when we take the sort of cover off the pipeline and we look at what it takes to get uh say a sample like a COVID-19 sample from a patient all the way through this there is so much software in that supply chain uh there are so many little strange packages you've never heard of that are you know providing some function there's so much hardware in that supply chain there's you know test strips and and assays and a ton of stuff and uh, you know, I think for me, that's what makes it really unique. It's possible for in each part of this step for there to be elements of bias, for there to be elements of, um, you know, just quality issues and things like that. And that that to me is what always has made it a little bit more daunting to think about um, fixing these problems, right? When you think about either, uh, you know, say funding a grant to kind of go out and do this, there's so many potential places you could poke to kind of say, hey, we have to fix this part of the pipeline, this part of the supply chain. There is some of that complexity, say, for example... Uh, if we're just looking at uh, maybe a, a what would be kind of considered a more straightforward problem like crop yield prediction but there's also you know a lot of research and the pipeline such as it is 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 more clear we know that there have to be teams collecting field samples there's good methodology for how to do that we know that geolocation of those samples is is a is a, a very complex process and we have to do that really well with good sensors but You know, when I think about all the sensors that go into that, all the people, all the processes, and then compare that to your average kind of general stuff, like, the health stuff is, for me, more daunting in terms of, like, how you actually get to fixing it uh, versus the the agriculture stuff, which is its own, you know, don't want to minimize the complexity of it. But, you know, we just think about what parts we might want to engage with to try to start fixing problems in equity. I I could see it a lot more clearly on that side than the health stuff
0: interesting you you talk about the, the the pipeline and in every point in that pipeline you've got a potential um, bias can creep into the system. So at Genomics England, we we, uh, we we designed a bias audit where we kind of combed through all of our technical systems and, and mapped out all the decisions that were made and um, how those decisions may or may not inadvertently bring in bias into our system. And, and, and what you end up with, with the, is this kind of beautifully, horribly long list of uh, like the ultimate backlog, uh, which is basically just like your shopping list of all the problems you could solve. And working out, I guess, the, the, the most important problem to address or what's contributing the most is you know, for us kind of top of mind. Um, how do you go about kind of massing all those problems and then saying, OK, we're going to go after this one? Like, how do you go about selecting or prioritising um,
1: when you're looking at such an independent inter- uh, and complex pipeline? Go on, I'll, I'll jump in first this time and then Evan, you can tell me you disagree. <laughs> um, to be perfectly honest, Maxine, I think that where we are as an organization is in a period of trying to be humble about the fact that we don't have a a good answer for this we are trying to do what you've done within gel at the level of several fields um and then trying to make what are enormous calls these are these are problems that are one incredibly complex that even once you pick apart there are things that sit outside our mandate as a funder where we can stand on the sidelines and try and use our influence to leverage change in the field, but we need other people to come to the table and work with us. Um, And so in in an attempt to prioritize, well, I have things in the back of my mind where I go, I think that's where the opportunity is. Um, And part of that is things like computational provenance. I think relying on people to document how they've made all those micro decisions you're talking about is never going to be an efficient solution because people will just assume that Others will know what they've done here, um, or they won't be able to document it to the, the degree that someone else needs to understand what's going on. So I think that there are bits of software we can build to take that responsibility out of people's hands, represent it as a graph. Um, but even then, am I convinced that's going to be the singular solution? No. Um, there is something about creating process and kind of getting people to a point where they recognize the importance of that. As a task that's equally as important as creating the tool, right? You create bring those two things together and am I convinced that, that solves a problem? No, we've got a hundred years of structural racism and whatnot, <laughs> which as much as I would like to think that we can solve, we can't. And that's bled into the system. So how do we roll that back? Um, even though we've got all the solutions now to maybe in this hypothetical world I live in, solve all the problems. So I appreciate I haven't answered your question about how you prioritize things, but I think the best thing i can say is it, it, it's a process we're trying to go through and if you have a good answer to how you do that at the scale of the whole field of genomics rather than a singular institution my ears are open
0: <laughs> we haven't we haven't tested the, gen, the, the generalizability of it yet
2: <laughs> for me this actually comes down to being like what's the skill set and who should we hire to take this on and these types of questions are things that great product people people who have experience building you know scale technical products think about every day and think about how to get feedback from people how to understand and organize uh, teams of developers and kind of do that and so i think it sometimes requires hiring maybe a a different skill set than we normally have within our scientific labs Uh, and then the other part that we have to do is it, it and this is extremely hard and is documentation and just being extremely rigorous about documenting each step And not in the way that I think we typically think about with scientific publishing, where it's like, let's document this experiment and the inputs, but it's let's document the ongoing kind of workflow. And it's not point in time, it's actually living documents, because these things will change very significantly. And building the muscle around documentation, I think, you know, the inspiration here when we look to things like... um, uh, data sheets for data sets, model cards for, for models, and Timnit Gebru's whole sort of cluster of work around that. You know, th- That's the dream, right? Th- that's the dream of having enough um, documentation so that when something does go wrong, or when there's an outcome we're not expecting, or when someone raises a question, um, we're able to go back and understand where to even start with, with diagnosing that and, and, and getting the start of a solution. And so for me, those are the two things is like, This set of tools around documentation and being really committed to active documentation instead of just point-in-time documentation for publishing, and then thinking about new skill sets that we can bring into our scientific teams um, that we can borrow from other fields that actually do some of this stuff quite well. And not to say that the tech product manager skill set is exactly the same as what we need and everything will be perfect, we just inserted tech folks here. But it is a different skill set, and it's one that we often don't budget for when we think about funding a scientific project. And so when I see teams, you know, when they're saying we actually want to have a uh, someone who's going to be responsible for documentation, um, you know, we actually want to have someone who's being be responsible for project management. And they're not just the most junior person on the team. They're actually, you know, quite a senior person and have some skill set. Those are really good signs that people are taking this seriously and that they're taking the idea of one, rooting out um, you know, bias and issues as they're designing a building, but two, understanding that um, it's really going to be a journey and you can't just build it once and it's perfect. And it, the life of these products, to these pipelines, life these data things is, is important to kind of maintain and, and continue to look for, for errors, problems, harms that come up along the way.
0: I love that. I love that. Um su- such such a, a, an advocate for, for appropriate documentation. And uh, I'm very reliant on bringing very smart, slightly eclectic, unusual, diverse people into one room and then getting out of the way because I don't have any of the answers myself. So thank you for the validation. Um, so the You've mentioned anti-racist organizations and all race, or you mentioned institutionally racist organizations and um, the need for anti-racism. And Bilal, you wrote a piece in mindthegap.health, which was a kind of characterization, in the call to arms about how to address this. And you know, we we are I appreciate the moment we're sitting in still quite like abstract level of of the discussion here, but going into quite practical. Um, descriptions of what it means to be um, an anti-racist or a proactively positive contributor to this landscape like what does that actually mean if you're um, sitting in a funding organization Um, because i know that it's a question that many organizations are asking themselves at the moment some of them started this journey about 18 months ago some of them have been doing it for a very long time um and i appreciate you're going to potentially be at different stages of of this journey but i would love to get a, a taste or a flavor of what it means for you guys to be a proactively positive or actively anti-racist organization um but now given the fact you also had such a
1: fantastic piece on mind the gap how about you kick us off gladly um and we've been thinking a lot about this and talking about it since the piece came out because i think that also galvanized the, the next stage of the conversation, which is, it's great to be able to talk about it, but it's also nice to be able to point to great things that are going on in the community. Um, and because I'm, I'm on, a, on a genomics podcast, it's worth mentioning something that Sanger announced a few months ago, which is a, a fellowship for people who self-identify who as Black. There was the um, HDR UK data science internships, again, um, for people who identify as Black, and i think that that is one of the one of the immediate things we can all do right there are historically minoritized marginalized groups in every country and if we're going to have an honest conversation about doing better um about making sure that the people in the do in the room doing the research as much as the data itself are diverse and representative of um our society it's about putting aside money and going you know what we need to do this with intention. And so I think that's that's one thing. There are other things, right? So Maxine, I know I've pulled you into this maybe against your will, but we've got a great project going on with the Office for National Statistics talking about kind of the the institutional frameworks and structures that we used to even talk about diversity. Right? Does the ethnicity classification system that we currently have stand up to um scrutiny or do you quickly realize that one, it's poorly used in practice? Um, And two, that we need something that recognizes the nuance and complexity of people in their background, right? An individual can both be British, Polish, and Ashkenazi Jewish, which box do they tick? That's the ethnicity classification we have today. Where do we get to in five or 10 years? If we wanna be able to do research that informs intervention, that identifies the molecular and the biological underpinnings of disease in specific groups, it requires us to be able to talk about who those groups are. And whilst I don't like putting people into boxes, if I'm gonna to have to do it, I would rather be a nuanced box that you want to like pick and choose for yourself rather than one that I think is maybe not the best. Um, and so that's another thing we can do, right? As a funder, we can put money behind conversations that really challenge institutional structures and go, how do we do better? And how do we make the most of what we have today? And then the last part is, I think coming together as a community of funders um, and giving each other a little bit of support and backup, which is yes, the Wellcome Trust is incredibly privileged in what it's able to do. It's an enormous institution as philanthropic foundations go, Um, but it's it's our community of practice that needs to come together, both with national funders and philanthropic foundations to set the narrative that we're going to do something else we're going to explore novel mechanisms of funding for example lottery funding um that remove some of the barriers that remove some of the inherent biases that you get with having a group of individuals uh on a panel making a decision and I'll stop there but those are the three kind of big ideas that we're thinking about we're actively doing and I I'm, I'm yeah I'm quite excited about what comes next because it does feel like we we're now experimenting in a good way. That's awesome, great. I think there's a great examples. Evan, take it away.
2: For me, the, the simplest way to explain philanthropy is you make a set of decisions. You say yeses and nos to projects as they come in their door. And I think many philanthropies um, will have set up very complex structures around deciding what to fund, right? Everyone has their box, right? Where, where projects fit that are very comfortable for them to fund, very comfortable to do. And for me, it's been a realization of solving big issues like equity in machine learning communities it might actually be outside the box we have conveniently drawn for ourselves and so we have to actually take a step back and say okay so we said we wanted to fund you know early stage um, researchers who are translating ideas from academia into startups that's really awesome but then if you look back maybe it's say a couple of years worth of funding in that space and you realize that we're not hitting anywhere close to our diversity metrics and you say like well but we really wanted to fund this one thing we wanted to fund within the box and we actually had to take a step back and say we have to fund outside of this box if we ever want our work in our little decision space to get any better at all, right? And so that's a tricky conversation because we've said to others, "Here's what we're going to be funding; these are our priorities; this we're going to be working on." But it's one you absolutely have to have as a as a funder who you know uh, hopefully more more of us care deeply about this and are willing to make changes. And then the challenge becomes: so we've made this big change; we're going to okay, say we're going to support. Um, you know, instead of just researchers, we're going to support a community organization. Before, we wouldn't have thought of that. We engage at the level of an individual researcher and in their portfolio and what they're going to drive forward. But now we're going to take a step back and support, you know, a community organization. The challenge then becomes, how do we actually get out of their way? Like acknowledging that we're funding maybe outside of our core of expertise. Maybe we're not community builders. Maybe we're just really good at managing scientific grants. Um, how do we get out of that group's way in a way that, you know, doesn't hold them back and lets them build something that's really useful. And I think these two parts of it is just acknowledging when um, the solution actually may sit out outside of our core comfort zone in terms of funding and then when we do go outside that comfort zone, not bringing the the normal toolkit we'd have to, it, to kind of manage these things and, and and letting folks run forward. And when we've done that, you know we've seen such amazing results that the community has driven forward right when when we think about um, you know the funding, that we've made to folks like Black and AI or Algorithmic Justice League, um, you know, recently Tim Gabriel's Dare, like these are groups that are changing the world and are, are then changing the potential for what we can fund downstream in terms of what data products are there. Maybe the more kind of what we just term as like the implementation folks are kind of practical stuff, but the things that show up on our doorstep right there changes dramatically because a group like Black and AI exists because they're helping. Black folks get access to conferences like NeurIPS, and then they're building in a mentorship program to help folks, you know, pursue PhD programs, and they're building an entrepreneurship program. And that's changing the field in a way that, you know, probably wasn't on our work plan, you know, three years ago, but it is going to make uh, the work we do so much better just simply by them existing and 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 kind of supporting the communities that move forward. And so that can be tricky because, you know, on the other side, you know, the funder brain is basically... Well, I have to say no to some things, and so I have to set up this box to keep me from saying yes to every amazing idea that comes in. But you got to kind of think outside your box for a couple of things because you know the bias often we're quite downstream from from where the start of things are, and and not everyone can uh, kind of solve it within their box. And so you got to think a little bit outside of that.
1: I'm going to jump in there if you don't mind, Maxine, Um, and I think that the one of the amazing things that Rockefeller and Evan as champion at Rockefeller is the funding of groups like black and AI right and not every funder is at that stage yet where they recognize the importance of kind of funding the community to do great work that's not a research project that requires you exactly like you said Evan not to treat it like a square peg round hole problem where we bring our toolbox to the issue and I'm sitting on the other side of the Atlantic knowing that a lot of UK based funders aren't there yet and I also know that on this podcast, <laughs> we've got Maxine who has built one of, if not two brilliant communities. And Maxine, I want to put you on the spot and say, if you had the opportunity to speak truth to power, would you do, right? You've got a brilliant platform, and you've done something amazing. What you, would you be saying is the opportunity that these kind of communities provide, where funders should be showing up and going, you know what, this she's done great. Um, one Health Tech's done great. How do we help you catalyze that mission well how do we catalyze that mission for you i'm gonna stop there and say i'm sorry for putting you on the spot but i do really want to hear the answer
0: no pressure yeah i have to say uh, evan what you're saying about um people liking the idea is like people love the idea of supporting communities because they're like oh these fresh people and it's so fizzy and there's so much energy and then when push comes to shove and you start talking about support and finances and investments and grants it all gets kind of very KPI and metricsy and um contrived in what is characterizes value and impact in a way that just doesn't it just jars with community so you know what you're saying is um feels like a characterization of the last five years of my life um i would say that uh, be, uh the easiest way i'd characterize it is viewing communities as people infrastructure people like to, people if you people can get, get their head around infrastructure, uh, in the sense of it's a, a thing that you can see, or hold, or touch, that enables lots of stuff, I think lots of funders have got to the point where they, where they understand the value of infrastructure, and they've kind of they can just about grapple with the fact that they can't completely see the. Uh, Uh, all potential uses of the platform the infrastructure but you know with a couple of use cases or a couple of examples of a couple of projects it can bring that bit of infrastructure to life Uh, I wish that they saw communities as that but for people Um, and so what comes out of that is amazing new ideas amazing new initiatives amazing new ways to go about doing things um, which definitely needs to be illustrated with kind of concrete projects or concrete activities but it's also that that's not that's not the uh, definitive or exhaustive list, it's it's an illustration of the potential and possibility. Um, And so whilst people talk about training and mentorship and skills development, um, that can often happen in a kind of one to many, whereas communities allow it to be many to many and allows the network effects within it and allows the scale of development and, and learning to be so much greater um, than in the traditional traditional sorts of teaching. So uh, for me, it would really be about like, converting the infrastructure, technological infrastructure mindset. and thinking about that as like people infrastructure. Um, and I just wish that people would uh, would uh, act on the feeling that they get when they engage in communities, because when I love it, I just love it seeing kind of slightly stale and uh, tired uh, individuals from major institutions walking into these community environments, like the One Health Equity and the Science for Health Equity, and just like, you can see them light up. I just wish that people acted on that feeling more. I'll get off my plinth now. <laughs> right. I like it. Thanks, good. So we've talked, to, and you have seen quite like abstract terms about um, the final landscape. We've talked about uh, some kind of concrete projects you're working on. Uh, let's go a wee bit deeper into talking about an initiative or a program or something you're involved in, something you funded that is really, really driving more equity and better equity in health and genomic data science. Um, so uh, I believe that Lacuna is probably quite a good one uh, to, to maybe start with. Um, but I'd love to hear um, some, some some proper storytelling around the thing that you feel is really leading the way in uh, equitable health data science.
2: Sure. So I, I'm happy to jump in and share a little bit about Lacuna Fund uh, for us. Um, you know, We'd spent a long time funding machine learning projects, right? And this is either research projects or kind of early stage social ventures. Uh, And in that process, we realized that uh, there were a whole range of problems that weren't even represented in what people were researching or represented in what people thought they could kind of build machine learning projects around. And that was largely, you know, to simplify a little bit, there wasn't even the ImageNet for that problem, right? When ImageNet came in and, and kind of transformed how we thought about image recognition, all the development that's come since, both in terms of algorithms, but then new data sets, workflows, products, all that's happened. There was never an ImageNet moment for so many like really important problems. Like, can we actually predict whether there'll be a famine for a given geography and then mobilize resources to respond to that, right? Can we understand uh, languages outside of a very small number of, you know, Western languages? Um, you know, these are these are kind of massive problems that. That, that very few researchers are even able to start with. So we took a step back and said, you know, what would be the most effective way to fund a bunch of image nets for x where x is, you know, a problem that has high social significance but has been, you know, historically not not part of machine learning research. And you know, we we said you know there's a bunch of different ways we could do this we could fund research teams, put in a little extra money for data sets and then you know make a deliverable of that open source your data set at the end of this. you know we thought about you know we could go kind of one by one and us as Rockefeller go out and fund data sets but in talking with you know folks across the community, we just found so many potential places where you needed to build data sets and we were struggling with the scale of the problem of like how would you even compare, you know, a, a, an amazing NLP data set, which would open up, you know, say, digital resources for, for, you know, millions of people with another amazing data set that would then unlock, you know, maybe medical diagnostics for certain imaging problems like that. and this is like, you know, how do you even compare those two projects, right? It feels very much like short shift to, to just say, okay, we're going to fund this one and not fund that one. And so we said, well, we need more resources, and then we also need a way for um, sort of the community of researchers that is emerging and growing around this to begin deciding those questions and begin making those trade-offs and kind of compare and advise us on that. And so, you know, we started poking around with our partners. Um, we you know took the idea on the road to deep learning in DABA and you know, talked with all of the amazing researchers in that community who themselves were just Bootstrapping this in amazing ways already, right? It wasn't like we found this field and like, oh, no one is doing this work. We showed up and there was all this energy between behind bootstrapping data sets and you know everyone was doing all this work. And so from that feedback, from talking with our partners, from talking with you know, just these communities of engineers who are already doing this work, we came to the idea of basically a data fund where you know Rockefeller would help by seeding some of the initial money, help by you know hiring a firm to to figure out the governance, the back office of it. It's very complicated to move these small grants around the world, et cetera. But we would subsidize a little bit of that in exchange for other funders coming in and saying, we're going to commit the fund through this fund instead of going our own way and just doing one one day sit here, one day sit there, one day sit there, right? And so we got enough funders, Google.org, Canada's IDRC, uh, GIZ in Germany, Welcome Trust Now, to come in and begin to capitalize this. And then we said, okay, so we also want to, want to pull this money. But then we also want to create structures that are advising this fund in a way that actually takes us as funders a little bit out of the loop. We don't wanna be the folks who are who are doing every bit of diligence and deciding these things. And so we brought in um, much more community advice and, and community governance at two levels. Uh, the first is a steering committee that uh, still does have some funders on it, but we have a process for basically ratcheting down the funder involvement over time and ratcheting up the community involvement. That steering committee says, you know, we think climate change is an important problem. We think it's a tractable problem. And we think it's a problem where there's a big imbalance in terms of the data sets we have. There's there's some sort of uh, global inequality, be it by geography, by race, by some other sort of characteristic right there. Uh, and so they say, you know, let's see if we can raise money around it. Let's see if we can commission work around climate. Um, and, you know, but that's kind of their involvement. Once they do that, the the secretariat and the team, they go out and raise the funds. Uh, they ask funders if they're willing to kind of come in and put things there and then they go out and find a technical advisory panel which is uh, formed of experts researchers uh, engineers from communities that may be uh, affected by the problem so instead of you know me sitting here in new york and deciding what data set should be funded in uganda uh, there's folks from macro university who are on the advisory board they're reviewing um, different panels there's folks from universities all across say africa um, southeast asia um, parts of latin america et cetera, who are coming together to make these decisions and to prioritize data sets that are actually useful for the research they're doing they're useful for the communities they want to build useful for the products they might want to build one day and by doing those two things of instead of one you know one funder doing one project pooling the money together there and then creating more community voice you know my sense is the projects i see coming out of this at the end are things that I probably never would have found on my own and, and things that, you know, I, I never could have dreamed of the kind of the impact for the things that have been funded or the potential impact for the things that are being funded right now. And so I've been so excited to see that scale up, to see, you know, welcome joining uh, and, and and really helping us focus on health data sets in a way that, you know, wouldn't have been possible at their advice, help us focus on the the health impacts of climate in a way that wouldn't have been possible just if we'd done it on our side. And uh, yeah, it's been been a real great process. It's in some ways it's like you know something is working when you can take yourself out of the loop and it does even better than than you could have done yourself. And so um, that's that's hopefully the dream with something like Lacuna Fun.
0: Amazing example. And yeah, thanks for painting painting such a, a vivid picture. Um, Bilal, have you uh, do you want to add your own example? Are you quite happy Um, having enabled uh, or played a small role enabling LACUNA.
1: (laughs) Uh, Played a small enabling role in the more recent work that the LACUNA fund is doing. I think it's an absolutely brilliant example and it's why every single time that they've come up with something that aligns with the welcome strategy uh, we've been so excited about getting involved. Um, So kudos to everyone at like google.org, rockefeller, idrc that were involved in setting it up. Um, We are envious that we did not have the idea first. Um, I think the only thing I'll add um, to add a slightly different flavor to the conversation is not a specific project, but rather just picking up on a specific way of working that is not at all new. I'm not gonna claim ownership of open source software development. If anything, in the funder domain, the credit for that belongs to folks like Sloan to CZI, Um, but it's small little changes to how we work. I think make a big difference to creating an equitable landscape. If we're gonna fund a team to invest millions in creating better software and creating some code that has generic value for the community, the only way we can make a case that we are making, we are making that grant in an equitable way is by making sure that that code ends up being useful for other people. So every single grant we make now, we have a standard open source condition so that other people can use what comes out of it. It's why, Evan and I uh, were so excited about being able to take that thinking and going, you know what's happened during the pandemic is that we've seen these wonderful centers of excellence that have had long histories of doing epidemics and infectious disease modeling that have been able to show up as soon as governments needed them to be able to inform policy response, right? In the UK it was um, the group at Imperial. It was the group, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, it was the folks up in Warwick that have done incredible work. But what it means is, when you look further afield, do people have the tools they need to be able to inform policymakers locally? Are the folks in Kinshasa every time Ebola pops up um, in northern Kivu uh, in um, the Congo, uh, when it pops up in northern Kivu, able to make those decisions informed by infectious disease modelling? Possibly. Does that exist equitably and available everywhere? No. And that's why we funded a project called EpiVerse a part of which is around creating an open source ecosystem of tools for the response analytics and control of epidemics um, and what we're hoping will happen is that over the next few years that community will grow other members outside of mrc gambia the london school and um, Uniandes in columbia who formed kind of the core cohort will begin to join they'll start to take ownership of new pieces of it and what we will end up with is an open source ecosystem of epidemics modeling tools that is genuinely owned by the community that cares about it, run by the community that manages it. Um, And I think we're quite excited about that and what it stands to achieve, especially given that we've lived through one pandemic, and I'm sure we'd all love to be more prepared for the next one.
0: Amazing, a hundred percent Please, No, not in my lifetime. Unfortunately, will be right. So I, I'm conscious of time. So I think we've got time for one more question. I'm going to be a, a wee bit cruel and do a kind of uh, word association either or. I'm not entirely sure what the setup of the question is, but um, I'm I'm going to do a option A versus option B, and I want a kind of pithy response. And it's not about necessarily selecting, but just like responding to the either or. So, um, uh, question one. As, a, as the role and/or position of a funder, so top down versus bottom up. Evan, you go first.
2: So I have a preference for bottom up, but I recognize there are some situations where top down leadership is necessary. Um, and the way I would frame it is, you know, depending on the problem we have at hand, almost always, you know, starting with bottom up is useful. But then foundations sometimes in their own structures, if you don't get something on the president's sort of agenda, if there isn't that buy-in at the top level, you're not going to be able to get the resources to sustain the commitment. And so there's some point at which this is basically the job of a program officer is to be in some ways responsive to the community, do the work as close as you can to the community, but then also level up and put something on the agenda so that if the president of Rockefeller Foundation, the president, you know, director of Welcome Trust is saying something, it matters in this massive way globally. And so I I think for me, you know, myself as a program officer bottom up, but then you have to work to translate it to, to what these institutions are saying globally. Uh, otherwise we won't make the scale of progress we need to make in the time we need to make it.
0: Awesome. Let me give you like a pithy ish, uh, thumbs up on that one. Uh, Bilal, top down or bottom up.
1: i entirely agree with Evan. There is nuance to the dealing with large organizations and having to manage them, but bottom up every day of the week funders are there to service the community. We are a lever by which um, the best ideas and the right ideas should be supported and go on to achieve the great things that they're meant to. Um, and if we're not informed by what the community wants to do, what the community thinks is important, where are essentially a power beholden to no one. Um, and I'm not sure I'm comfortable with that.
0: So so similarly lines but but this is definitely a different different
1: question. Major programs or micro grants Bilal, you can go first this time so i'm I'm interpreting major programs as big grants instead of micro grants, and I'm a big grants man just because I think that um if we're going to support someone, we should give them the freedom to not have to think about another grant for several years. That kind of job security is what gives people the kind of both the excitement and the ability to engage, engage kind of every bit of their brain and focus on the task at hand, instead of worrying about whether they're going to be able to support their postdoc next year. So I think if we're going to do something, um, we should give people all the support they need to get it done and done well. And that includes going back to something we were talking about earlier, giving people money to pay for community managers, giving people money to pay for folks to document code, um, and support communities of practice. These are all vital things that we should be supporting.
0: Evan's nodding vigorously.
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah, well, I, I hate to make it a sort of it depends answer, but the, the things I think about here are what's the timeline for impact do we need? Uh, and then how clear have we been in our conversation about incentives with the grantee? I think there are some times in which um, designing the mega grant actually isn't responsive to what people actually may need or want in that moment and actually may support structures that are themselves more self-sustaining than they are productive. Um, but then there's also a moment where, you know, you can't microgrant grant uh, uh, something that's taking off, right? You have to at some point make a sort of big commitment. And so I really do think it's, what's the scale of the problem? What's the timeline you need for impact? And then how quickly can you mobilize resources within your own institution? And I've certainly used both and, and used both well and probably use both not so well. And so uh, trying to get better at that every day.
0: Okay, awesome. And we're gonna finish on the, um, maybe my slightly more controversial one. Uh,
1: Are we post-colonial or neo-colonial? Who's gonna be first? (laughs) I'll jump in because I'm not gonna answer your question and I'm gonna insert the third option, which is decolonial. Um, And that's how we would like to be funding at Welcome. (laughs) I'm seeing nods, but just (laughs) silent.
2: Yeah, on the U.S. side, I think the, uh, the colonial framing is, is less uh, relevant given our history. But the, the spirit of, you know, are we just being um, part of the uh, positive solution moving forward or do we care about systemic inequities and systemic racism in the past is, is very relevant. And for me, um, the problems we're working on here, despite their sort of technical face, run incredibly deep and without deep examination and deep work, uh, in terms of those histories and becoming a, you know, an anti-racist organization, it's very difficult to see us practically fixing those, right? Without really digging into the past and understanding and, and coming to face with it, um, we're not going to be very good at moving forward in the future. And so, you know, um, yeah, that's my answer on that one.
0: Well done. I thought you you both handled uh, what was an unfair question set so up very well. Amazing, really, thank you so much. Well, so that's everything for this episode. So, thank you so much for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications here of funding in data science, in health, a, a tiny little bit about genomics, um, and certainly how we can mainstream uh, an equitable genomic landscape in healthcare and society. Um, so, to find out more about the work that Bilal and Evan are involved in, probably they're quite active on Twitter, to be honest, both of them. So, uh, probably that's quite a good way to start if you want to personally talk to them in the digital sphere. So, Evan's uh, handle is av- at Evan Tekovsky, and Bilal's is at Bilal underscore A underscore Mateen. And um, so, definitely give, give them a wee follow because uh, certainly I get most of my good ideas from following them. Um, and remember, you can also read and hear about more stories uh, and accounts and research on the topic of genomic data diversity and health data diversity. in general at mindthegap.health If you've got any views on some of the topics that we discussed or even you have someone in mind who uh, would uh, be so willing to be interviewed by me or anyone else at Genomics England. And um, please do write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. We always love hearing from people, and even if it's to say uh, you could have done slightly better in your last discussion. And um, importantly, please remember to subscribe to the G Word. I don't want to beg, but it does help with the ratings on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Um, and if you've enjoyed listening, uh, please give us a five star so that other people can find out about the series. And um, don't, don't, maybe don't give us a, a low star rating if you like it give us a rating and then if you didn't just go to bed um anyway we really appreciate your support so until next time thank you so much for listening to the g word and thank you evan and bilal for your time
2: awesome thank you thank
1: you Maxi.